In this episode of Influencers, Yale Law School Dean Heather Gerken. Our job isn't just to train people to go into a side of courtroom or file a brief. Our job is to train people to lead, to change the world, and to make a difference. I always tell our students we have a tradition. It's not just a tradition of conversations across divides, but a tradition of friendships across divides. And so we are really thinking hard about how you keep that up in a world where, in the outside world, everyone is at each other's throats. We know we have to teach all of our grads for their last job, not just their first job. Hello everyone and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer and welcome to our guest, Heather Gerken, Dean of the Yale University Law School. Heather, so nice to see you. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. So I know one thing that you're very uh, excited to talk about is that you recently extended full tuition need-based scholarships. Talk to us about that and why that's so important. You know, one of the most important things at this moment in time is making sure that everyone is at the table for the conversation about our future. And you know this, I'm sure. Law schools uh, have great, you know, law schools are not doing as good a job as they need to do about ensuring that legal education is accessible to everyone. And so we did something that no other law school has done, which is to give full tuition scholarships to the students whose families are below the poverty line. So just to baseline that, that's $26,000 for a family of four. And those are the most entrepreneurial students on the planet. But when they come to law school, they have a completely different experience of it than our middle-class kids who are also on scholarship. So, so there was this day in, uh, in the spring when we were able to send out an email just to say to 50 students, next year is on us. It was, ex it was an extraordinary moment. And, and you know, in some ways, this has been uh, a long time project for me. Um, when I was, uh, in 2016, I, I invited over the first generation professionals. They just started a group uh, to talk about law school. And the students came to my house and we were sitting and we were eating. And all of a sudden this, the dam broke. And those students started asking me questions that most law school students don't worry about. So they would say things like, I don't know if I should print out my cases because it's $50 to print out cases for the semester. I don't know if I should buy my textbook because that's a couple hundred dollars and I could be sending that money home. I don't fly home for Thanksgiving, even if my scholarship award lets me do it, because I don't wanna have another dollar of debt added to my family. And that was so important and so powerful in shaping this program, because what you realize is even though we have the best scholarship program around, 75% of our students are on it, we have the lowest debt load of any of our peers, those students don't have a safety net. They're not like our middle-class students. In fact, they are the safety net for their own family. And so what it has meant for these students to sort of lift that burden off their shoulders so they don't have to think about it has just been remarkable. Do you think the legal profession, Heather, is further behind in terms of economic diversity than say medicine or business schools? In other words, is it more of an uh, non-meritocracy economically, historically? You know, it's a really good question. I actually think this is a shared problem, mm. to be frank, because to get into the finest universities in the world, a lot of students have a leg up on, on the way in. And, and that has 
advantage them systematically over time, even when people are, are, are doing their best. Uh, and so I think we all need to double down. And, and that means a couple of things. It doesn't just mean scholarship, although that is incredibly important, but it also means reaching out and finding those students and pulling them into the pool. And, and just to give you an example, you know, we have, we have 80% more students who are first generation college students in the class in five years. We went, when I started as dean, we had a 10 year average 32% students of color. And we started building out pipelines, reaching out to students, doing the affirmative work you need. We are now 55% students of color. And by the way, our scores have stayed steady or gone up. That is what law school should be doing at this moment. Maybe we should take a step back and um, talk about Yale Law School. Um, give us a precy. How many students go there? What is the, its, its status versus the other law schools? What's, what differentiates it versus the other top law schools? Yeah, so we're tiny. You know, we only have 200 students in a class. So Harvard Law School, by comparison, has 600 students in a class. But we punch way above our weight. So what, what the law school is known for is graduating an incredibly heterogeneous group of people who make a huge difference in the world. So, you know, I think most people think law schools train lawyers. And we train lawyers, lawyers, we do a great job at that. But we also train people to go into finance and to start nonprofits and to run agencies. And so if you look at our graduates 10 years out, one in five of them is in the private sector, but they're not practicing law. They are running Blackstone or they're starting a company. If you look on the public side of it, there's this great, um, really great story in Bloomberg. And they said, gee, there are a lot of lawyers in Washington who are not doing lawyering work, they're doing policy work. And so they did a chart, and the chart shows one-third lawyers, one-third non-lawyers, one-third Yale Law lawyers. I mean, that is kind of extraordinary given how tiny the place is. So I think we're known for being a place that has a really wide-ranging education. We may be the only law school that has offered a course on the Book of Job, but we understand a law school degree to be a thinking degree. You know, we have a set of students who are inheriting an impossible set of problems to solve, and we need to teach them to solve it. And so we have always tried to train broad-gauged, highly analytic, deeply ethical thinkers. That's, that's the goal, and we're known, we're known for that. Yeah, I just want to drill down into that a little bit more. What is it that makes a, a Yale Law School degree applicable to being a business person? We're talking about business here, Yahoo Finance. So. What are the skills that would make someone succeed running a P&L, for instance? It's a, it's a great question. And, and I should just tell you that um, we actually compete against Harvard and Stanford Business School. Mm -hmm. So we may be the only law school in the country doing it, but we do. And, and there's a reason why we can do that. Because what law school teaches you is to think. It teaches pattern recognition. It's highly analytic. It teaches you to problem solve in a really concrete way. It teaches you how institutions work. It teaches you how to think about both the is and ought, what you ought to do, not just what is. All of those skill sets, when you talk to our grads who are doing finance, who are on Wall Street, they all say that their law school degree, they say what Bob Rubin said. Bob Rubin has said his philosophy degree at Harvard and his Yale law degree were what prepared him best to be Treasury Secretary. And that's, that's our baseline. That's, that's been our tradition for a long, long time. But we're doubling down on it. Um, because I think if you're an institution, you have to change 
in order to keep up with your best traditions. So we have, are building out a leadership program that is ensuring that our students are numerate and not just literate, that it's giving them exposure to technology issues, the kinds of things law schools don't traditionally teach. But we know we have to teach all of our grads for their last job, not just their first job. And so what we are doing is building out on the structure that has always existed that has turned out the Bob Rubens of the world, we're building out something that ensures that our students really are able to walk into, into a place in Wall Street to go start a company and really do an amazing job at it. So, and the proof is in the pudding. They are there. They're every, if you look at where our grads are, it's kind of extraordinary. Oh, yeah. I was just looking on the Wikipedia page at the notable alums of the Yale Law School, and it was, there were literally hundreds, um, yes, in the legal profession, jurists, um, senators, judges, et cetera, including four current Supreme Court justices, um, which is pretty remarkable, um, and, and also people from both sides of the political aisle. And I know this must be challenging for you, increasingly challenging, given divisiveness in our society. So how do you manage to keep everyone on the same page when you've got people on the political left and the people on the political right? Well, this is a question that every university, every law school yeah. is facing at this moment. You know, I always tell our students, we have a tradition. It's not just a tradition of conversations across divides, but a tradition of friendships across divides. And so we are really thinking hard about how you keep that up in a world where in the outside world, everyone is at each other's throats. So we do everything we can to remind our students that you can't be part of an academic institution without engaging with people from the other side. You can't be a lawyer unless you can sympathetically and empathetically reconstruct the best argument for your opponent to really know what's honorable in their commitments and what's weak in your own. So those are the traditions of the school, and, and we're talking about them constantly with our students. I mean, I'm really proud to say that every one of my faculty members, I believe, on the first day of class had this conversation with our students because we are all collectively committed to making sure we, we don't just train great lawyers, but great citizens. Uh, one of your alums, Joe Tsai, a businessman from Alibaba, um, has set up the Tsai Leadership Program. Can you talk to us about that? It's, yeah, it's one of the biggest programs in our history. Mm. Uh, and it is an effort by Yale Law School to build a curriculum for the next century. So, you know, I was saying about our legacy. Our legacy is we have a pretty eclectic curriculum. We, we think in a broad gauge way. But we realize that a traditional law school curriculum just doesn't teach you everything you need to know. And that, you know, whether you're going to be a lawyer's lawyer and inside a courtroom or whether you're going to be Josiah and running a company. So... We are building into our curriculum basic numeracy courses that you wouldn't normally get as a lawyer. So I remind our students, everyone needs to know corporate finance. Everybody needs to know stats. Everyone needs to know accounting. We're teaching tech courses. You know, we can create a pop-up course in AI, something to expose the students. You know, they don't need to, to, to be programmers. They don't need to code. But they really need to be fluent in, in that world if they're going to be able to face the problems that, that they're going to be facing. You talked about affordability of, of Yale, but what about law schools writ large and maybe some that aren't as prestigious? Certainly it would seem to me that going to Yale would pay off just by dint of its network alone, never mind the education, which is also important. But what about some second and third tier law schools and, and affordability? And does that make sense for students to go to these places? You know, I think every dean, I mean, I really think this is a collective and an individual issue. So, I mean, we're, we had 
in place when I started the best scholarship program in the country, and we still felt the need to build out the Horizons Hearst Scholarship Program because we realized even with the best scholarship program in the country, we needed to do more. And, and we needed to do more in part because the students who are coming from below the poverty line, they, you know, even, I don't care if they go into the private sector and make a lot of money. I don't want them paying off loans to us. I want them to pull their family out of poverty. You know, we forgive the loans of their students who do public interest work just to en enable them to launch them. Th that's at the core of what everyone needs to be thinking about at this moment. And I think we can all do more. I mean, I'll just say, part of the reason I'm building this program is because I want to change Yale Law School. And just the, the magic of having 50 students without the burden on their shoulders is, has been amazing. But I also want to help change how legal education is funded. And one of the great gifts of being Yale Law School is that when we move, others move with us. And so we really want to inspire others to rethink how legal education is funded. Because I'm sure you know the model is that everybody, um, everybody takes out loans. That's, that's the model. And I'm proud to say that Harvard and Yale are the only two law schools in the country that are entirely needs-based. So, so people take out different amounts of loans, but we, we give more money to the students with the greatest need. And, and we graduate our students with the best debt load, and we forgive their loans if we need to. That is not enough. That is not enough to, to break barriers for the students who come from below the poverty line. But there's a bigger issue, which is that law schools in many places, they're giving out scholarship based on merit. Uh, and so they're giving full rides, lots and lots of them, millions and millions of dollars, to the students who don't need it the most. And it's my view that scholarship money should go to the students who need it most. So we're not just trying to change the amount of money that's being given to support students. We're trained, we want to change it the way it is given out. You know, I, I really hope that we can challenge our peers to rethink those scholarships, to put them in the hands of the kids who need it most. That is the model of Princeton and Yale College, right there. That's what they're doing. It's time for law schools to catch up. It's time for law schools to really get a sense of how an economic inequality works. And that requires a model that doesn't involve giving out full merit scholarship. That involves not making everyone take out loans. It, it really have to think about not just you know, money for an individual, but how a family experiences debt. That's, that's something that needs to change inside the law school world. And so we're mm -hmm. hoping to inspire our peers to follow us. And you yourself were a scholarship student at the University of Michigan Law School, correct? It is, in fact, um, so I turned down Yale Law School. Um, I, was a, I was a kid with no lawyers in my family, and Michigan called me and they decided to create the first Darrow scholarship and give it, and give it to me. And you know, for, I didn't have any idea of the choice I was making, uh, I, but, but I knew that, that it would really make a difference in my life to have that tuition, and, and it was an enormous gift. I am always thankful for it. But the thing I also know is um, I was probably not the poorest kid in that class. I'm sure of it. And there were kids who needed that money more than I did. Mm. And that's what motivates me. Right. Um, you're a leading federalism scholar. Talk to us about what that means. Um, and you're also a progressive. So are those two things at odds? You know, I, um, I write about federalism all the time, but it is not your father's federalism. Okay. So, uh, Do tell. Yeah, in law, I, there's a big debate about federalism, and there are a lot of people who think, either because of the New Deal, they think you need a powerful national government, or more importantly, the civil rights movement, there was real skepticism about states and, and the role that they played in oppressing 
minority groups within their own community. And so as a result, federalism has, has really not been the darling Gotten of a bad rap, though, maybe? It has a bad rap. And I mm -hmm. have spent most of my academic career trying to keep, keep convince people to have an open mind about it. So I don't believe in the kind of traditional version of, of federalism, but I do believe in states and I do believe in localities. They are the sites for changing our democracy. That's where all the work gets done. It's really hard to start a national movement, but, um, but you wanna sort of you know, turn the gears of change, you gotta start at state and local. And so that's, that's part of my scholarship. It's also, I'll just say, part of what I do as dean. So if you wanna change the world, if you wanna have problem solvers, students have to stop thinking that everything happens in Washington, D.C. They need to figure out how to go back to their own communities and to do the real work of change inside them. So, so a lot of the work that I do is build out those networks so that students are going back to their communities and, and changing things. But, but wait, isn't empowering those lo localities, states and municipalities, running, in fact, counter to federal laws and legislation that you would favor? Well, this is the difference between me and almost everybody who writes about it. Um, I am perfectly comfortable with the federal government playing what I call the supremacy clause trump card. So the federal government has every right to regulate. And, uh, and, and I actually, you know, that's always the thing that people worry about. Will rights be enforced? I think the federal government clearly has the power to enforce important rights within the states. And the states can't shield themselves from it. I think that's crucial. Um, what, what I, though, see about states is that they help us think about what those rights ought to be. So if you just think about the same-sex marriage movement, states and localities changed what the federal constitutional right was. And they did that by building it out over time, showing people, showing people on the other side what things look like in the real world. To me, it's a very lawyerly thing. I mean, again, when I talk to you about t training our students, we want our students to be able to show the other side what the best argument on the other side looks like. And sometimes that's by showing a real life example. Yeah, and I guess it's not necessarily conservative, i.e., as you're saying, with same-sex marriage, marijuana might be another example. Marijuana is, in fact, so I feel right. like you've been reading my articles. I marijuana is a great example. Right. Climate okay. change, mm -hmm. health care. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work mm -hmm. on the ground that progressives care about is happening in states and localities. And that's true for conservatives as well, right? Mm -hmm. The work on gun rights and abortion has been happening at the state and yeah. local level. So, so it is a, it's a tool for everybody. Right. And uh, if you're thinking about change, you need to know how to, how to work through. Think globally, act locally. Um, one of the Yale Law School clinics, specifically the one that you lead, was the center of a major decision last month on opioids in San Francisco. Can you tell us about what happened there? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's one of the great joys uh, of, of my life is that I get to teach this clinic. We, we pa partner with the city of San Francisco to do affirmative litigation. So most cities uh, mostly do defensive work. So someone gets hit by a bus and they get sued and the, the lawyers defend it. The city of San Francisco has this kind of extraordinary model, which is quite rare a few years ago, but is building steam in lots of other cities now, which is they do affirmative litigation. And so my students have worked on just an astonishing range of cases. They worked on the same-sex marriage case at trial they helped win a nationwide injunction for sanctuary cities. No one, no one gets to help work on a nationwide injunction in a career. And my students were doing it as first and second year law students. And we just had this astonishing victory in the opioids case, which is um, holding Walgreens accountable for the role that it played in distributing it. And you know, every city has been devastated by this. And so it's a chance for the city 
to speak in a different register than the other lawyers that were there. So it's been, it's been, it's, it's incredibly high level litigation. My students are engaged in the toughest, most important legal questions around on entirely new legal theories. And there they are as students getting to do this work. We touched upon this a little bit earlier, Heather, but I want to ask you about free speech on college campuses, university campuses, and what your role is as dean of the Yale Law School. And obviously, um, these issues have come up at Yale, um, at other universities as well, but some of them high profile instances at Yale. Uh, is this an instance where you should weigh in, feel compelled to weigh in, or asked to weigh in by your president? Where do you sit there? Oh, well, I mean, this is an easy one. I, I weigh in whether or not anyone asks me <laughs> because it is core to being an academic and it is core to being a lawyer. So you cannot be an academic or a lawyer and not believe in free speech. Um, so, you know, we are dealing with the same questions that are happening on every single campus across the country. We, we get a little bit more news about it because Yale Law School looms pretty large right. in people's imagination. And so they really care about what's happening on our campus. But I weigh in repeatedly and clearly to state our values because it's essential that we have this conversation with our community about its importance. Um, I do it at every single orientation. Um, I do it at the beginning of the year. And, and I'm really grateful that my colleagues are doing it with me because it, it makes a difference when I can say, I'm speaking on every single behalf of every member of my faculty. That makes a difference when you're talking to students. Right, and I'm sure that means bringing conservative voices and liberal voices on campus and allowing them to speak. And I guess where the rubber meets the road is someone starts asking questions, then it becomes shouting the person down. And that, start, that crosses the line, right? And so how do you adjudicate that in real time? That's not your job, but how does one adjudicate that in real time then, or preempt it? Yeah, you know, so we, we are deeply committed to actually bringing different voices on campus. So with the help of one of our alums, we started an originalism conference, which is immensely important that all of our students get exposed to that kind of question. Every year I run a bunch of seminars where I, um, you know, you were talking about these friendships. So Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith could not be more different uh, in terms of their politics. They're also really close friends. And I invited them. I said, I just want you to do one thing. I want you to disagree with one another and show the students that friends can do that um, and, and you know, show the students how model that for them. You have a podcast? I do. What does a law school dean have a podcast for? I mean, my faculty are dazzling. Uh, and, and so I realize that in some ways we get to see them every day uh, uh, and yet we don't get to share it every day with, with people outside the institution. So I've been sitting down with my colleagues and we talk about their work. I talked to Tracy Mears, who is one of the finest scholars in the country doing work on racial justice and policing. So there's a clock on Tracy's mantelpiece from her great, great, great grandfather who bought that clock. It was the first thing he bought when he was freed from being a slave. And, um, and that clock has been handed down from generation to generation. And, you know, and to have Tracy say, well, you know, when she talks about this extraordinary work she does, why does she do it? You know, it's that clock. It's, it's the fact that her grandmother said, you don't belong to yourself. Your job is to serve your community. I think that's really important. You know, I think these folks can be so dazzling. They're so smart. They do so much work in the world. But also just to let people catch a little glimpse of the human side of them, I think, is important. And finally, Heather, how do you think about your life's work still very early in your career? It's kind of a legacy question. Um, 
Can you sum up what you're trying to do on this earth? You know, I want to change legal education, and I, um, and I, you know, everyone is working on this, so I don't want to suggest I'm the only one. But if I sort of imagine what I really care about, one is the scholarship program. You know, if if every school in the country did what we did, it would enact a sea change, not just in how legal education works and who's able to come in the door, but it would it would change everything um, in terms of the, what those people can do afterwards. It would free them to go out and make a difference in a way that we're not doing right now as a collective. And the other thing is I want people to see that a law degree is a thinking degree and that our job isn't just to train people to go into outside a courtroom or file a brief. Our job is to train people to lead, to change the world, and to make a difference. Heather Gerken, Dean of the Yale University Law School, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Andy. It's just been delightful. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.